Thanks for tuning in to episode nine of Innovation Activist, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reed Omri, and this month we have a very special guest, Dr. Sherry Cannon, who is professor and chair of radiology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Dr. Cannon is a trained abdominal radiologist and has served in a variety of leadership positions for the American Board of Radiology, the American College of Radiology, and many other organizations. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sherry. Growing up, what was the first opportunity you had for a leadership position? I don't know that I remember that. I do remember being very competitive. I remember grade school and whatever we were doing, I wanted to win. And, and I don't know what that says about me, but I, I remember that. And whether it was the kickball game or who has the best paper mache pumpkin, I just remember I always wanted to have the best and very competitive. If it was a team sport, I would typically step up early on to make sure we got the best team. In reflecting on this, I also remember in selecting the team, the challenge that is with individuals. Of course, the most athletic, if we were playing some sport, the tallest, the fastest, whatever the game was, were selected first. And I remember feeling sad for those individuals that were always selected last. And invariably, it was the same group of kids. And I, I remember struggling with that. I honestly can't remember how I handled that. I would like to say that I stepped up and perhaps <laughs> selected them sooner than later. I don't remember. I hope I did. But I remember that conflict even as a kid. And I remember learning early on that you've got to step up and play. Were you the type of kid that was quietly competitive or were you always openly competitive? I think as I got older, I learned to be more cautiously competitive. And I remember at times I would be competitive behind the scenes until I knew I could achieve something. But younger, I, I don't remember. I, I remember being told and, and talk about genderfication that, you know, I was the bossy girl, right? Or I was the tomboy. And looking back now at how we assign gender behaviors to kids, I remember that now. Of course, at the time, I had no idea. Would people actually say that? Yeah, I was very much a tomboy. And some of that was earned. My, uh, I had an older brother, and I always thought my dad wanted another son. And so I, he very much treated me like an equal. And so when I was a very young age, he taught me things that were traditionally male-oriented activities. And I appreciate that he did that. So I have an older brother, too. And how much competition was there? Huge. In fact, that was probably the biggest <laughs> driver. You know, he was eight years older, super smart. Super successful. I mean, he, you know, he did everything right. He was on every committee. He, I mean, you know, just the older sibling you don't want to have. <laughs> and, and he was so much older, so we really didn't have that friend relationship. He was so far above me. We never overlapped in school, but I saw his accomplishments, and that was a huge driver for me. And I would say it was in a positive way. It didn't become destructive for me in any way. It was, I think it was a strong motivator. I don't remember my parents teeing it up that way. I think it was totally an internally driven thing. In, in hindsight, that was he was a big driver for me, and I think it was good. Would he take the time to explain to you and give you advice for how to do things, or what you learned from him, was it more by observing? I think both. I think he did teach me things, and I remember going fishing with him. I remember playing football with him. And he would teach me things, but he would do so in an interesting way that was super demanding and fairly intolerant. 
So I remember the first time that he decided he was going to teach me how to drive a stick shift. And so he thought it would be great to take me out in the busiest highway in Dallas to learn. And he thought trial by fire was the way to make things happen. And it was terrifying. So yeah, he did teach me things in kind of unique ways. <laughs> As you've grown into ever more leadership positions, do you ever find yourself giving some of the advice or using some of the methods that he had used on you? You know, I don't know. I've never thought about that. That's interesting. You know, if I think about it, I think where my residents would say I'm the most challenging is when I teach fluoroscopy because I have such a passion for it. And if I'm being honest, I'm fairly intolerant <laughs> about the subpar performer. And if someone shows up in a fluoro suite and doesn't know the protocols, I would say that's not my most emotionally competent state. And so I would be fairly intolerant and be very driving and demanding. And that kind of reminds me of my brother teaching me how to drive a stick shift on a major highway. You've had a ton of success as a leader in various roles, and you're a tremendous mentor to many. What are some of the necessary skills that you think are required for people in leadership positions? I think there are a set of foundational skills that every leader must have, and, and above that, it's really about their strengths and interests. So foundational skills, emotional competency. We must have empathy. We must engage with people in an empathetic way. And we must take the time to do so. And I think that's a, it's exercise. It's something that you have to practice every day and you have to do it for the rest of your life. And it's not just about leadership. It's about how you engage with all people, your family, friends, significant others, as well as your colleagues. Um, so I, I really spend a lot of time on emotional intelligence. I think it's important because that's a broad umbrella that covers a myriad of things, not only empathy, but communication skills, persuasive skills. Change management even is under the rubric of emotional intelligence because so much of change management is understanding how this new change is going to impact the other person. I think that if you have emotional intelligence as the foundation, really everything else after that is what you layer on so that you are an authentic leader based upon your strengths and, and that you, um, you really emphasize and develop those strengths and address your weaknesses too. Sherry, you are a dynamic and inspiring leader. Many people view you as a, as a role model. And uh, unfortunately, in radiology, we don't have nearly as many women in upper leadership positions as we should. How might women take on new leadership roles in medicine, in healthcare broadly? I think the challenge is we need to step up. We need to take advantage of opportunities that come up or in some cases create opportunities. But when they do come up, be brave and say yes. Um, we can spend all day going through a list of things of why we're not qualified or maybe we're not qualified or, or fear of failure. But we have to step up and make that stretch and put ourselves out there and, and be vulnerable. I'm careful. You know, I think sometimes I will hear men make the statement, we try to find women, but they're unwilling to serve in leadership roles. I think we need to be careful of that stereotype because that's not always true. It may be we need to communicate differently with women to get them to consider those roles. A really powerful story that was recently shared at one of our national meetings by one of our colleagues 
prominent uh, medical institution, and he was put in charge of a committee to recruit a fairly high-level leadership position outside of the department, an institutional position. And so as the chair of the selection committee, he put out the charge, let's find some good people. They came back with the initial round of CVs, and, and there, I can't remember, it, it few to no women. And as a good chair, sent it back out. He said, this is unacceptable. We need to find more candidates. And I think he did that a couple of times, and still nothing. And they did the usual posting emails, etc. And he said, you know what, we're going to do this differently. And so they took the list of all the women who qualified in their institution, and it was a lot of women, and divided it up amongst all of the committee. And everybody was assigned to call these women and have a conversation about the position. And in doing that, they pulled out three more women who ended up interviewing and were actually spectacular candidates. Now, unfortunately, they didn't get the position, but each have gone on to interview for other positions and move up in the organization. So one, the lesson is there, but two, it was such a light bulb moment for my colleague, your typical middle-aged white man who said, I had no idea. I always thought that I was the advocate for women And it turns out you really have to sometimes approach things differently. Don't do more of the same, but do things differently. And he actually debriefed each of these women after the fact and said, tell me why you didn't step up initially. And of course, they all said, well, I wasn't sure of the position. I had never done anything quite like that position. And then one of them, I think, was I wasn't sure I was qualified. Those are the conversations that we hear women have in their head. And I think men, if they want to partner with us and help pull us up, we, we may have to think about how we approach recruiting a little bit differently. Were those three responses that you just mentioned there, would they fall under the category and bucket of imposter syndrome? Yeah, and some, some version of imposter syndrome. And, and, you know, imposter syndrome is another one I'm careful with. So two conversations around imposter syndrome. One of my very well-respected senior leaders who I report to, I was invited to enjoy a new leadership opportunity. And after the first meeting, he asked me, how was it? And I said, well, I'm having the biggest imposter moment I can ever remember having. And he turned to me and looked at me and he said, what's that? And I was like, exactly. And he had never even heard of this, even understood what it was. And he was like, well, of course you should be at the table. So I thought that was interesting that him as this very seasoned, well-respected leader never crossed his mind. Now, we have to be careful, again, stereotyping. I was giving a talk in the last couple of years and, and mentioned imposter syndrome and referenced it as an issue for women. And I had a man come up to me afterwards and challenge me. And I thought it was great. And he said, don't be fooled. We have that as well. We may not admit it, but we experience it. So I thought it was kind of interesting. How do we help anyone overcome imposter syndrome or something that is directionally imposter syndrome? Well, you know, I I think it's a matter of managing fear. We're all afraid at one point or another. And I think people who shy away from it feel like others don't feel fear. We all feel fear. We have to learn to manage it and, and push beyond it and just say yes, just step up. And I, you know, I sometimes walk myself through the worst case scenario. If I step up, if I say yes, what is the worst thing that's going to happen? And most of the time, it's usually about public humiliation. If I don't get that position, everybody will know that I failed. And the reality is we don't typically look at people like that. You know, if you were up for a super important national position and didn't 
get it? I wouldn't say, oh, Reed, that's that's really sad. No, you don't. You're impressed that someone stepped up. So you have to kind of get yourself coached up to make that reach and just push beyond the fear. All of us have fear. It's just managing it. So when we look at collectively the objective of advancing the careers of women in healthcare, what are some things that men can do? Lack of gender diversity is not a women's issue. It's a community issue. And so men have to partner with us to address it. And I choose that word carefully. And and you actually taught me this, I think, a couple of years ago in a lecture. Words matter. And, And I think with diversity initiatives, words really matter. Men as partners, not men as champions. We don't need a champion. We don't need to be saved. We need a partner to work with us. I think the first step is the fact that men have to understand the depth and impact of their biases. And we all do. We all have biases, men and women. And I know many men and women who have super good intentions, but they don't realize the impact that their biases have on things. So they really must appreciate that and not just lip service, but realize that. And then if you're really going to address your biases, you have to surround yourself with a diverse group of people to help mitigate against those biases. So that's the benefit of diversity is in some ways counteracts the different biases. But then men have to advocate for women. They need to sponsor women when they are at the table. They need to pull up women to the table and they need to amplify what women are saying. Very simple, practical things in the boardroom when if a woman is cut off or, you know, man interrupting as the, as the term is or bro-appropriating, men need to step in and undo that. It's very powerful when a man amplifies a statement of a woman and appropriately acknowledges her contribution to that concept. There's a classic New Yorker cartoon that as a couple, they're out at a restaurant. There's the man and uh, he's got glasses and he's got a beard and a crook in his neck is a little bit uh, arrogant. And he's sitting there with a woman across the table and he, he says ever so casually, let me interrupt your expertise with my confidence. <laughs> That's perfect. How many how many times have we been in committee meetings and we see that interruption? And it happens by very well-intended people. It's not we're not dealing with misogynist here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about everyday people who want to do the right thing that have these implicit biases that just come out in different ways. What resources might you recommend that our listeners consider for advancing their own leadership skills? There is unbelievable volumes of information on leadership. I mean, in every form, you know, blogs, books, journals, it's just limitless and can be overwhelming. And I I think all of those are great tools. And I think particularly for younger leaders and younger generations, they're better able to access these resources. The undervalued tool is the power of a network, in particular for women. Sometimes this network of women who they can tap into not only as mentors, but just uh, confidants and advisors and really just 
to talk to other women because we all have similar challenges. We Some people have best practices, some people have worse practices, but it's just inspiring to hear from other people. And I'm using women as an example because that's what speaks to me. Hear from other people who you identify with, who are successful, that you realize, you know, they're just kind of a normal person like I am. They're nothing particularly special. I think that is a tool that's underutilized. I think people should actively grow their networks and, and however you define that network. But it takes cultivating, it takes time, it takes intention. And so often we say, well, I don't have time to do that. I'm so busy. I think we need to prioritize that so we develop that network. And I think all of us need that network. In business schools, they'll often have scheduled time, and you look at the agenda for the day, and it'll just say networking. Right. I mean, it's so obvious that that's a good thing to do. In healthcare, we don't see that. We don't see that as much as we should. We don't. And I I think there are a lot of things we can learn from our business colleagues that would really help us, and, and I think we need to move in that direction. So last question for you, what is your advice you might give someone who's interested in pursuing a leadership role in their organization? Where might they start? You know, probably the first thing is reflection. What what are your passions? What do you love? What do you do well? And if you have a mentor who can help you reflect that, I think that's great to have that outside perspective, either to reinforce or perhaps suggest alternatives. But then once you've done that assessment, look to those who are doing something that you would like to do and even reach out to them formally. But at the end of the day, it's just a matter of being brave, stepping up and saying yes and putting it out there, knowing you'll fail a few times, but that's okay. Such inspiring and wonderful advice, Sherry. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you. And for our listeners, please connect with Sherry Cannon at Sherry Cannon or myself on Twitter at Reed Omery. We'd love to engage in a conversation with you and share the ideas that you have for how people might pursue a leadership role in their own organizations. Thank you. Look forward to next time. Thank you.